Brad Rustin, thank you again for being on the Emerging Litigation Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about, I'm going to ask you about BlockFi and other DeFi lending programs. So who is BlockFi and what are these programs? Yeah, so BlockFi uh, was one of the big players in the DeFi space. And if you think about DeFi, it stands for Decentralized Finance. And the idea is instead of as a consumer or an institution going to a bank or going to a lender, Instead, you're using digital assets, so cryptocurrency, stable coins, securities tokens, NFTs, and you're directly contracting with other people for financial products. And so DeFi um, you know, encompasses a pretty broad range of products, but really what we're talking about here is DeFi lending meaning an individual who owns digital assets, so you know Bitcoin, ether, Tether coins, stable coins like USD coin or DAI coin is going to take those, lend them out to someone else, and that person agrees to give them back with interest. And so it's a way to make interest on your digital assets, what we're talking about here. And you can make a lot of interest on these digital assets. So, you know, typical savings accounts yielding probably 50 bips, you know, half a percent. Uh, some DeFi protocols are running into the high single digits, uh, even into the teens, the interest rates that they are paying right now under these DeFi protocols. And, you know, so we always get this question, uh, which is, okay, what, what, why are people paying such high interest rates for digital assets? And that's really kind of what gets us in this question about like staking and institutional lending and things of that sort. Okay. So can can you explain those, uh, explain staking and institutional lending to us? Sure. So there are institutional borrowers who are potentially shorting cryptocurrencies. And so they have to have cryptocurrency to cover those shorts, or they might be engaging in what's called a staking protocol, which means you want to act as a validator in the blockchain. And the way we make sure you're legitimate is you may have to put up $500,000 in staking coins, or you may have to put so much of your cryptocurrency at stake in order for you to get all this revenue as a validator on the blockchain. And so people will borrow that because they don't want to go out and buy $500,000 worth of Bitcoin. They'd rather borrow it from someone else. And so they'll do that. And then they will agree to repay it with interest paid in Bitcoin or Ether or DiCoin or USD coin or Tether coin uh, the next day. So it's almost like an overnight swap uh, in, in this BlockFi model and others. And you would lend your digital assets and they'd agree to pay it back with interest, almost like a savings account. But instead of that half percent yield, uh, you know, at the time, BlockFi was paying eight and a half, nine percent on you lending your digital assets to them. Now it's a little bit lower for things like Bitcoin, but with stable coins, you know, those that are pegged to a dollar or gold or some other asset, uh, they were paying high single digits. So presumably they were making low teens to mid teens, taking those digital assets and then lending them to institutional borrowers. Okay. Sounds, sounds like a great deal. So can you give us a, an overview of the, the state and federal actions against BlockFi then? Yeah, so it started with a series of state actions, uh, looking at BlockFi under various uh, securities law regimes. And it was specifically looking at a BlockFi savings account. And if you think about a savings account, 
all it is, is you say, I'm going to give you something, you get to use it, and you're going to pay me interest for using it. Same thing as if you went to your local bank or credit union and said, I want to open a savings account, and they agree to pay you interest on it. Uh, just here, it, it's digital assets. The, the the real issue arose is that's fine for a bank to do. That's fine for a credit union to do. But if you're not a bank or a credit union, under the securities laws, you're potentially now issuing a security. Uh, when we think about kind of the, the, the scope of what is a security, and we can talk about this a little bit if we talk about the charges that were actually leveled against them. Yeah. But, you know, security is pretty broadly interpreted to mean that I'm giving someone something of value, they're going to try to do something with it and then give me value back plus something additional. And, you know, basic savings account is potentially a security if it's not issued by a bank or a credit union. And so it started with states starting to poke around BlockFi and, and, you know, and others in this space and eventually led to an SEC investigation that ultimately resulted in the uh, consent order that BlockFi entered into with SEC that we're talking about in particular today. So to go over some of the, of the basics then, so how does a company establish an investment product? Yeah, so there's a famous test called Howey. And, uh, you know, funny, uh, the SEC actually tried to issue something called a Howey token, just to poke fun at this. But uh, if you think about Howey, it's this old case that dealt with a Florida orange grove. And whether or not if I owned an orange grove and I sold people trees in my orange grove, whether I was issuing a security that had to be registered. And, you know, the argument that the orange farmer made is, no, 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 I'm just selling you a tree. What the SEC looked at is what then becomes the basis for so much of the securities regulation in America is, well, you weren't just selling the person the tree, you were selling that person the right to participate in the orange juice production. And everybody who owned an orange tree were going to collectively pull their oranges and sell them or squeeze them for juice and we'd all share in the profits. And so what Howie ultimately does is create a series of tests uh, that, that, that the SEC looks to in determining if something is a security, meaning are you investing money? Is it a common enterprise, which means more than one person is coming together to do something with the expectation of profit and with the profits derived solely from the efforts of others. And here's that's kind of the magic piece of this, meaning we've all got to be working together and a portion of what I make has got to come from the efforts of others. Meaning if all of us are just laboring together and we all get paid for our labor, that's not the same thing. But if instead I'm giving you money to get to the job and you promise to pay me a cut of the profits you earn, I've now invested uh, in your business. And so, you know, with these particular accounts, they called them BlockFi investment accounts, which admittedly, if you're trying to say it's not investment, don't title it the BlockFi investment <laughs> account, but uh, they called them BIAs. And what the SEC ultimately kind of, as it went through that Howey analysis, what the SEC said is the crypto assets that you were lending were the equivalent of money meaning you did lend money to someone else or the equivalent of money, the, the asset, 
BlockFi in pooling all of those investors' crypto assets together and then them lending it out on your behalf was the common enterprise. And you as an investor expected a future profit based on BlockFi agreeing to pay you that interest and sharing the interest BlockFi was earning from the people who were borrowing it through this program. And so the SEC went through this process, you know, a number of which are pretty remarkable, which is first, crypto assets are the equivalent of an investment of money under Howie. And then two, that BlockFi, by organizing this system together, effectively acted as the issuer of a security because I had to rely on BlockFi to pay me the interest. And I had to rely on BlockFi to find the borrower who would borrow my digital assets. And I had to rely on BlockFi to pay me the interest at the end of the day. Is how the SEC kind of reasons through this. Okay. The, uh, so can you explain SEC's finding that these BIEs were unregistered securities? Right. So then once they go through this analysis of what's called the investment product test, the Howey test, they say, yep, you have issued an investment contract or investment product. Uh, then they go down the path of, did you properly register the securities under what's called the Reeves test? And so according to Reeves, you've got this, this old, again, holding of the Supreme Court that says a promissory note, meaning you give me something, I agree to repay it with interest, promissory note, basic concept of a note, is presumed to be a security unless it falls into an exemption. So this is what we were kind of talking about earlier, which is if you think about a savings account at a bank, it's acting like a note. You're lending your money to the bank and the bank is promising to repay it to you on demand with interest. And so when they look at it, they say, okay, these notes are presumed to be securities. You're agreeing to take somebody's money, do something with it and pay them interest back. But what BlockFi was arguing is, well, wait a minute, interest accounts, savings accounts aren't considered securities. Therefore, we offering the same product should also be treated as not being an unregistered security. And the test for that is what we call the family resemblance test. And what family resemblance test says is there are certain things that are defined that the, the public has no reasonable belief would be a security. If I go into a bank and open a savings account and it's FDIC insured, meaning I never risk the loss of the money, well, certainly not up to $250,000, there's no reasonable expectation on my part that that's actually a security. I don't think I'm putting at risk. I don't think I'm relying on efforts of others. I'm relying on the bank to pay me interest. And if the bank doesn't pay me interest, I'm relying on Uncle Sam to pay me that interest. I have no reasonable belief to think that money is at risk or that I'm relying on someone else's efforts. And so then when the SEC gets involved in BlockFi, they say, well, wait a minute. When we look at that, what is the motivation of the seller and the buyer? How was the instrument going to be distributed? How would the public perceive it? Is it otherwise regulated? 
The SEC said, no, you're actually holding this out as an investment product. There's questions as to whether or not there is security for this, meaning when you lent out my, my, my Bitcoin, were you really getting a dollar for dollar cash back? Or did you have insurance to cover it if the borrower just never gave the Bitcoin back? And all of that meant, or according to the SEC, certainly, that I was relying on BlockFi to make the scheme work, unlike a savings account where I'm relying on the bank, its regulators, and the FDIC, the U.S. government, ultimately the Insurance Reserve Fund, to make me whole if the money goes away. And so that's how then the SEC backs into the holding that BlockFi was operating as an unregistered investment company under Section 7A of the Investment Company Act and was issuing unregistered securities under both Howie and Reeves, meaning the savings account product or the investment account product, the BIA, was actually an unregistered security. Why do you think BlockFi was targeted? I think there's a number of reasons. Uh, So first, the SEC has been investigating a lot of people in the space. So this is not an issue that is unique to BlockFi. And so I certainly don't want to say they did something wrong that the rest of the industry was doing differently. Uh, Well, I shouldn't say wrong. They have entered a consent order. The SEC has agreed with them that they issued unregistered securities. But they were not doing something that was significantly different than what a lot of other people were doing in the space. But I think what got the SEC to focus on this is they're worried about how the, and the SEC states this, that they're worried about how this was being disclosed to consumers. Was it being presented as a savings account? Something that consumers expect, I put my money in the bank, when I demand it back, they give it to me. And if the money goes away, then somebody is going to insure it. Was the, the were the consumers led to believe this was a lot safer than it was? And then the other thing that I think really hacked off the SEC is, according to the SEC order, only 24% of the obligations were collateralized, meaning if there was 100 Bitcoin that was being lent out that night, we're talking thousands of times that amount, but say 100, then they were only getting the equivalent of 24 Bitcoin in security overnight to make sure the borrowers actually repaid that Bitcoin the next day. And it was being advertised to the public as being 100% secured. Again, portraying that this looks more like a savings account or a high yield savings account, as opposed to that it was a at-risk investment where you are giving your Bitcoin to a borrower who many times you don't even know. Most of these DeFi lenders don't disclose who the borrower is, or if they do, they don't disclose the terms of that loan. Most say you can ask for it. It takes about a week. We actually did it just to see. Mm -hmm. Um, But it takes a while for you to get that information. So you're really relying on BlockFi or the other players to make sure that the, the borrower is good. And by all accounts, they were. Nobody really lost money on this thing. Uh, but the risk, according to the SEC, was materially different than how it was presented to the consumer. Okay. Well, it sounds like BlockFi took a hit. Uh, what, what were the penalties assessed against it? 
Right. So uh, $50 million uh, was the, 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 the settlement with the SEC, another $50 million in settlement to the various states, attorneys, generals, or securities regulators who had actions. Uh, BlockFi had to go back and register or it is in the process of uh, registering this particular offering with the SEC. I'll bet they are. (laughs) Exactly. They are. And they had to register under the Investment Company Act under Section 7A uh, because they are then operating as a issuer of securities and an investment company uh, who is offering this product. So not a huge penalty probably indicates significant cooperation. I mean, I'm not saying a hundred million is nothing to sneeze at, but you know, that that's certainly far from the record. Um, and, you know, candidly, it's serving as a basis for a lot of people in this space to re-examine their programs and has, has set the tone, if you will, uh, at the SEC for how this is going to be approached because these things are just so popular. Well, you said that BlockFi wasn't necessarily doing anything that anybody else wasn't doing. So are, are there indications that other players are targeted? Absolutely. The, the SEC has been making comments and public speeches and at various times uh, about these DeFi investment products. Uh, there are a number who have publicly announced that they have received investigative demands from the SEC. Um and so I don't think this is just isolated to BlockFi because, as I say, BlockFi was not doing it significantly differently than how other players in the space were running this. There's a few that run a slightly unique program involving a state trust company that sits in the middle as opposed to BlockFi wasn't using a state trust company in the middle of the program to be determined what effect and what impact that's going to have. But at the same time, you know, the, 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 this was not something that was unique to BlockFi. And so now what, what is the SEC asking these companies to do? Yeah, I, I think really where they're going is they're saying, if you're going to offer these types of investment products, whether you call it a savings program or an uh, investment account or a digital asset lending program, they want you to register it as a securities offering with the SEC. And then obviously with that comes the disclosures that the SEC has to approve, meaning you'd either have to do it as a uh, a qualified offering, you know, like a private placement, or if you really intend to offer this to the public, then you've got to file an S1 or something similar and actually file it as a securities offering, register it with SEC, they get to comment on it, and then you can go out and market it to the public with the imprimatur and all the protections uh, of the SEC associated with that, that project. Well, what remedies does the SEC have for unregistered securities offerings? You know, and this is where I think, you know, if you compare what was possible to what BlockFi actually received, I think there's probably some indication that this was both uh, evidence of cooperation as well as we see this a lot with regulators. I see it a lot in my practice where they will pick someone who goes first and they try to be more lenient with that person because it's going to serve as the warning shot to the industry. Now that you've heard their position, number two gets more severe. Yeah, you know, if you're doing this exact model three years from now, they'll likely throw the book at you. But you know, the SEC truly has pretty wide, uh, wide-ranging penalties, all the way up to jail time, forfeiture, disgorgement. Uh, sanctions where you could never issue a security again, or you'd only be able to do it with pre-clearance from the SEC. 
or even blocking you from being involved in any other public companies. I mean, you couldn't sit on the board of directors of a public company, things of that sort that we've seen. Obviously, here with BlockFi, BlockFi had to pay the penalties, but they also had the SEC agree, we're going to register this offering and you're going to support us registering under the Investment Company Act. So it's not, you know, the, the, the kiss of death, if you will. Instead, you know, this really looks like a way to set a tone with the industry that would, you know, in, in turn carry forward. Okay. In addition to government actions, there is private litigation uh, around this. How, how might this impact private cases? Sure. Uh, you know, one of the uh, interesting offshoots of this is anytime you have governmental litigation or, you know, regulatory action, there's usually private litigation that follows. I don't think we've seen a lot of it because no one has really lost money at this point. You know, by all accounts, BlockFi has done what they said they would do. They paid the interest. They didn't lose the money. You know, where I think you're going to see the problem is some of these smaller, less sophisticated folks who are doing DeFi lending. You know, I think they are as soon as you have consumers who don't receive their, their digital assets back, meaning the borrower goes out of business, borrower stole the Bitcoin and never returns it with interest the next day, uh, that's ripe for litigation. You know, not to say you couldn't have litigation in this case, but to really see the big numbers, you're going to have to see people taking losses. But with the volatility right now in the digital asset economy, as well as the economy at large, you're starting to see the building blocks come together where in a downturn, there might be times where you may be relying on that 24% collateralization that BlockFi had. You may have to turn to that because the, 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 the person who borrowed the digital asset went kaput or lost it, stole it, what have you. And as soon as that happens, it's really going to be primed for uh, the consumer protection lawyers to, to, to open up private litigation against these companies. Okay. Is, is that when you talk about BIA investors having claims against BlockFi, do you think there's a risk of that? I think there is. I mean, as I say, it, it's fairly small right now because nobody lost money. Right. But with this type of precedent being set, I think you've now got the legal basis to assert a claim if there's money that's missing. Not to say somebody's not going to bring some sort of technical action, uh, but, you know, candidly, if, if you're a consumer protection lawyer, you're looking for big numbers. And the way you get big numbers is you have a lot of people who lost a lot of money and you recover it for them. And I think as soon as you have that, that's really where you're going to see the risk. So in terms of is there a lot of risk to BlockFi itself right now, um, you know, I'm sure there likely will be some fallout litigation, but you're really not seeing any of the massive class actions because, uh, certainly, as I sit here today, I've not heard anything that BlockFi ever didn't do exactly what they promised to do, which is return the digital asset and pay you the interest on it. And just a general question, do you, and you don't have to answer if, if it's not in the uh, interest of your clients to answer, but do you think uh, digital currency needs to be or will be regulated by the SEC? I certainly see that in the news as a possibility. Sure. It's a lot easier for me to answer number two than it is number one, which is, <laughs> you know, within the digital asset space, and I joke with a good friend of mine who you know has been playing in the digital asset space for a lot longer than I have. Uh, he leads our, our group there. There's a whole policy debate. You're either, you know, one of these people who thinks digital assets are the next economy. It should be wild west, fully unregulated. 
I certainly am more of a pragmatist, which is in the history of financial products, governments like to regulate financial products. Governments tend not to like things that can't be monitored, things that can't be regulated. You know, Treasury has an aversion to that. Treasury likes to regulate the economy, likes to regulate people doing things in the economy. And so I think there's certainly a desire to do it. And the nice thing is, and you know, candidly, even as a practice, we think the right regulation makes a lot of sense. You know, having no regulation leaves us stuck in a gray area where we don't know what the legal treatment of things are. We don't know how it's going to work. We don't know what the SEC's position is on a tether coin versus a stable coin versus a cryptocurrency versus a securities token. But if we get that type of certainty, I think there really is the potential for the U.S. to step back ahead in a leadership role in the digital asset world. Uh, because right now we, we tend to lag. And what I mean by that is we lag regulatorily, meaning our regulations have not really been tailored to this industry, but we're also lagging in the Wild West approach, meaning there are a lot of other countries who are truly allowing the Wild West to occur. I don't think the U.S. will go that way. But you saw recently a uh, joint statement by a number of the financial regulators all coming together and saying they are going to be focusing on this as a top priority in the 2022 cycle. And so I think regardless of the should it, the answer is they will try to more tightly regulate not only the digital asset ecosystem, but also these things like DeFi, like DeFi lending that's at issue here. But to your point, you know, some some degree of regulation, or let's just say whether it's regulation or some clarity about the rules is is helpful uh, to people who are operating in this space, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I teach a uh, fintech and financial regulation class, and I joke that you know most of the laws or regulations we operate in right now were last updated in the 1960s and 1970s. Now, you had some updates, uh, you know, with Dodd Frank, but those really focused on lending, not payments and you know securities, what have you. And so, we're really far behind in terms of keeping up with this cutting edge technology. And all it's doing is getting faster. And so, yes, I think, you know, being able to say, instead of having to figure out whether my, my coin looks more like an orange grove in Howie, or whether I'm selling a piece of artwork that's not a security, it'd be a heck of a lot easier if we just knew, here's the approach the SEC is going to take, and really had defined roles there. And I think the SEC wants that as well. I don't think that's something that would surprise the regulators. Well, Brad Rustin, thank you very much for talking to me, but this is a fascinating topic and uh, an important one since a lot of people are going to be and are doing business this way. Absolutely, Tom. Yeah, I think this is the next 10 years and the more people can understand this and get ahead of it, the better off we're all going to be.
if I can indulge you for one more second, if you have it. Sure. So, so if uh, I may or may not use this, but so I've got a mother-in-law who's mm-hmm. uh, let's say she's 84 <laughs> and I've got a nephew who's like say early twenties and he's investing in uh, Bitcoin and all these things. And she can't understand Bitcoin. <laughs> mm-hmm. How do you explain Bitcoin? Cause she says, well, it's not a bank. Where is it? Who's, who's, who's overseeing this? Is there a simple way to explain Bitcoin? Yeah, the easiest way is to think about it in two separate ways. So when we talk about digital assets, it's either decentralized or it's centralized, meaning I can have a token or a coin that's issued by somebody who controls it, who sets the terms. Okay, that makes sense. That's kind of how money works. If somebody Mm -hmm. issues it, it's just now lots of people can issue it. When you think about something like Bitcoin, it's unique in that it was created and in essence cast out into the world. And there's no one who runs Bitcoin. And instead, every time a Bitcoin changes hands, miners or what we call nodes or validators all over the world look at that transaction and you have to come up and say, this is my Bitcoin. Here is the proof I own it. Here are the keys that unlock it. And very high powered computers all over the world are looking at the data on that Bitcoin, who it belongs to according to the blockchain, this record that's created that shows every transfer of that Bitcoin from the moment it was created until that very moment in time. And once enough people agree, then it is transferred on the blockchain to a new wallet or a digital address. That could be a digital address at a brokerage house. It could be truly just your own personal wallet. You know, the benefit of that is nobody can ever manipulate Bitcoin. You know, and that's the security aspect of it is if you wanted to hack Bitcoin, you're talking about hacking thousands of nodes simultaneously to try to steal the money. Well, you, you, you just can't do that. That's the security of Bitcoin. The downside is anybody with that Bitcoin address and the private keys or the password, think of, to unlock it can transfer it to anyone else in the world. And once it's transferred, it's transferred forever. If someone steals your login to your digital wallet and transfers all your Bitcoin, there's not somebody we can go to and get it back. It's gone forever. The chain is written and nothing we can do can unwind it. And there's nobody to complain to because nobody runs Bitcoin. (laughs) Okay. And and so that's really the challenge with it, uh, particularly when we talk here about things like these DeFi products. A lot of people, I think, are looking at DeFi as a more stable way of doing this because there's a guaranteed return and you're less exposed to the up and down. And and this has existed for a while. I mean, you know, this goes back to the old stock lending programs of, uh, you know, I think it's the 80s these came about where you own some GE stock. Somebody else wants GE stock but doesn't want to buy it. And so every day they buy it from you and then pay you rent, in essence, or interest on your GE stock. And they give you back the GE stock whenever you want. 
And so this existed in stock world for a while, uh, and now it's been used in the digital asset space. Okay. I guess it's the miners where, uh, are, are these human beings? Are these computers? Are these bots? What are they? Uh, it kind of depends on the chain, uh, but if we're talking Bitcoin, they are extremely high-speed computers okay. uh, because every time one of these changes hands, it takes more and more processing power to validate a transaction. And, and that's kind of the downside of Bitcoin, meaning if you were to criticize Bitcoin, a lot of people say, look, every time it transfers, it uses more energy and more time to transfer it. And you now have people who run these giant farms that consume massive amounts of energy with these mining rigs, these extremely high power mining computers mm-hmm. that are running 24-7, because in essence, it's a race. And you know, you may have an ultra high speed, you know, top of the line mining rig right now, and you might mine a Bitcoin every 60 days. Well, so then you've got to have 5,000 of these rigs running all the time, using up the energy to power 5,000, you know, what most people call supercomputers in these big warehouses with really good AC systems to keep it cold. And, you know, and and so that's why instead you're seeing a lot of push to uh, a new type of blockchain that, that is instead of what we call proof of work, meaning these high-speed computers are solving these massive algorithms, they're what's called proof of stake, which is instead of having hundreds of thousands of nodes across the world, well, that's maybe optimistic, tens of thousands of nodes across the world, uh, you may have a more limited number of nodes, but each of those nodes has put up a half million or a million dollars in stake. And if they lie, cheat, or steal, they forfeit a million dollars. And so you can make a much more streamlined blockchain system because they had to put up all this money. And so instead of with blockchain, you'd have to hack this massive network of miners to hack the blockchain. On a proof of stake, it's a little bit more nuanced, which is you could, but that person would be risking that million-dollar coin that they have staked to be one of the validators. And so there's, in essence, two different approaches to create security of the chain. So if you put up that money, is it almost like the FDIC or not? <laughs> in a way, it is. It is I mean, I mean not, you know, yeah. if you lie, cheat, and steal, we take your money. Okay, And so it'd be similar to exactly what you're saying. For the FDIC to let you have a bank, uh, nowadays you better have 20 to $50 million that you're putting up in order for them to give you access to the banking system. Okay, uh, yeah, We want to make sure you're legitimate and not going to use it for, for bad purposes. And then what's the, what's the incentive for the miner, the big mining rig companies? Are they getting fees? Right. So, uh, on blockchain, if you are one of, if your mining rig is the one that solves the the algorithm, uh, then you are rewarded in Bitcoin. I got gotcha. you. And with the price of Bitcoin going up so much, there's a lot of reward in mining a Bitcoin. Um, other networks pay just a fee to everyone who who is validating on the network. I mean, there's different ways of doing compensation, but the idea is you're lending your computing power to the network, and they're going to pay you for lending your computing power. Okay. I got you. 
All right. Well, I will send you my uh, my diagram when I'm done for my mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, it, it is a complex, complex little animal. So I understand 100 percent. 